I used to say, come on in and get a seat, but <laughs> come on in. We're going to get started in a minute, literally. Very exciting today. Richard, could you, while we're getting ready, could you tell us what you've been doing the last 10 years or so? Where have you been? So yep. people get an idea, sure. get an idea of your experience. Yeah, I'm in a rut. For the last 18 years, I've been president of the Council on Foreign Relations. <laughs> I'm, in, I'm in a serious rut. Uh, a much envied rut. <laughs> Okay. And do you have, go ahead. Go ahead. Do you have um, what what kind of uh, backup staff and so on do you have? Well, we've got about four hundred employees. We've got uh, <laughs> or every, everybody's working, you know, remotely now. Uh, yeah. We have our our offices in New York and Washington are both closed. Uh, and I think we'll be remote for quite a quite a while to come. But we're doing everything we normally do, just doing it virtually. Okay, so we're gonna we're gonna get started now. People are coming into the Zoom, okay. and um, I want to just welcome everybody. I'm Larry Jacobs, I'm a professor at the University of Minnesota in the Humphrey School of Public Affairs, which is the School of Public Affairs at the University of Minnesota. We've been holding uh, public events uh, for quite some time now and we've gone online. So um, this allows us to bring in extraordinary guests uh, and to open up our conversations to the internet. So there are folks from University of Minnesota, from uh, Minnesota and then around the world. And we're very excited about today's program. And I wanna let you know as part of our tradition that we welcome, urge you to give us questions uh, you'll see at the bottom of the screen there's a Q&A button. Please give us as many questions as you think uh, are important. And we'd love questions that are challenging. Um, so please uh, join us. We'll get to as many as we possibly can. Very excited about um, today's program. Uh, Richard Haas is arguably the most important person uh, in the area of US foreign policy outside of government. Sometimes the organization that he runs, the Council on Foreign Relations, is known as the shadow government. Um, but it's a lot more than that. Um, he has worked uh, for both George H.W. Bush and uh, George Bush, George W. Bush, uh, in their administrations. He's been a special envoy to um, Northern Ireland. And for a geek like me, he's an author. He's written 13 books, including his latest, which is a New York Times bestseller, The World, A Brief History. And that sounds almost impossible, but I've got to tell you, I read it, it's 300 pages, and it starts in the mid-17th century, when you begin to see the formation of a modern global system and, and uh, the formation of individual states, which respect the independence and boundaries of others. And then it proceeds to go through around the world different regions, looking at the challenges in the current global era and the scenarios, uh, quite unnerving, of rising disorder and what can be done to maintain order. It's an extraordinary book. It turns out it's great for holiday gifts too, for those of you who are friends 
or family who want to know more about our global system. Thank you very much, uh, Richard Haas, for joining us. We're, Richard, we're really glad you're here. I, I just started the book on page uh, 62. And it is, as uh, Larry says, a really good book. Something that uh, should be widely read and I hope will be by not just students, but by uh, citizens of the United States. We need, we need what this book tells us. And we're also- Thank you. We're delighted to have uh, former Vice President Walter Mondale with us. And this is gonna be a really fun conversation. Um, Mr. Mondale, we were talking before everyone came in about um, the 2020 elections um, and uh, some of your thoughts about it. Yes, I, I asked for the privilege of giving one of the first comments because I am totally baffled by this election. I thought we were gonna win uh, going away. And so that we barely won, this was a cliffhanger. And uh, we had bad results in the Congress. We had bad results in the Senate. Um, uh, a lot of uh, good Democrats around the country uh, bumped into this uh, uh, rose feeling. And now the election's over. Uh, the big issue was settled, I guess. Uh, well, I hope it's settled. It has to be settled. They, they, we've, been, uh, the, uh, we've been declared the winner and uh, by outside scientific groups. And uh, I think that, that that margin is going to continue to build. Um, uh, President Biden, President-elect Biden is putting together another uh, government, uh, officers, cabinet officers, specialists, and so on, to start his uh, government. Uh, and uh, a lot of young people are attracted to, not just young people, I'm getting all kinds of mail from old friends that are willing to join. Um, and. Um, I hope they get. I hope they get jobs uh, that they're better than the ones I gave them. Um, what What can we do about this? What What can we do, uh, President Hawes, to create a more uh, serious and uh, responsible dialogue in in America, where we're, we're ready for the next election, but it's healthier, it's opened up more, it's less bitter, it's less uh, negative, it's less uh, partisan, it's less, and it's more um, based on listening, education, spirit of compromise and resolve. What do, what do we do to try to get a better spirit uh, going in our elections than, the, than this last one. First of all, let me say uh, how glad I am to be with you. Thanks to the wonders of modern technology with you, uh, Mr. Vice President, and with uh, Professor Jacobs here. Yeah. Uh, 
it would be hard not to have a better spirit in the next next election, given that the, the baseline we've set. Uh, but I, a more serious answer is it's going to be hard. This election, what we're still going through, and more broadly, I think reflects uh, what I recently described is uh, one country, but two nations were very divided. More than 70 million voters vo voted for President Trump, as well as for Vice President Biden, now President-elect Biden. Uh, I think people reflect different geographies, rural versus urban, big divides, big di uh, people tune into different cable channels, radio stations, websites. Uh, we don't have as much in common anymore. Uh, you know, we don't believe there's tremendous pushback against national curriculum, national education standards. Uh, most people graduate from high school or college without having been exposed to much, if anything, in the way of what our generation called civics. Uh, so I, I worry. I don't, I don't think it automatically improves. And one of the things I would hope that soon to be President Biden will do, is, I think he's already started. I think he'll continue it with his inaugural address. But essentially, I think he can set a different tone. And rather than, if you will, playing to his base, which has been the approach of this president, can reach out across the political divide and be something of a bridge builder and a healer. And I'm maybe I'm naive, um, but I'm hoping that makes something of a, a begins to make a difference over time. I'm hoping that educational reform could make a difference over time. I'm hoping that other people in our society essentially conclude we've in some ways we've been to the political brink here. We have been as close to, and hopefully we're beyond it now, I don't know, but widespread civil disturbance. Uh, and I'm hoping that we pull back and we, we look at what we have to do to change the tone and increase the tolerance, if you will, of, the, uh, of our political conversation. You know, I won't go on forever, but I'll just say the lesson I take from all this is that democracy is more fragile than we understood and things that we thought we could take for granted, either about our role in the world or the nature of our own society. I think what the last four years have shown us is the, the veneer is, is thinner than we thought. The momentum of continuity is less than we thought. So what I think it ought to do is get people out there, essentially we've all got to do more than. If people are worried about what we, where we're potentially heading, then I think we've, we've got to do more to try to build some new connections in this in, the, in, in, this, uh, in this society, because otherwise I, I worry about yeah. that. However, even if, if and when Donald Trump essentially passes from the scene, I think a lot of the forces that he both represents and that he has reinforced, uh, I think some of the, again, I, I worry about the, the momentum of division. Larry? Yes, sir. Uh, I want to come into this, this topic. Yeah. I wanted to come into this question about the election, um, Mr. Haas, and, and ask Dr. Haas, I wanted to ask you about how, how you read the fact that Donald Trump got the second most number of votes, 72 million now, after running a, an administration that was uh, targeting the global order that you and Mr. Mondale and many others built that was uh, international that was uh, based on multilateralism that built institutions after World War II 
and um, has been able to maintain that. Everything that Donald Trump did in the areas foreign affairs was aimed at toppling that. And then he went, he, he draws 72 million votes. What does that tell you? <laughs> that I haven't been very persuasive. Uh, look, first of all, if 145 million people voted this, uh, in this election, uh, less than 1%, I would bet, voted on the basis of foreign policy and international relations. Uh, so there's that, first of all, that people, which is ironic, given that we're living with a virus that broke out in Wuhan, China, apparently broke out there. Uh, but people don't often see the connections between what's going on in the world and what's going on here at home. They don't see the connections between American foreign policy and what goes on in the world. So I just think this set of issues was discounted. So and, you know, one could argue here was the things that Mr. Trump got right. Here's the things that he got wrong in foreign policy. I tend to think the latter list is, is more extensive, but I just don't think many people were motivated. I think the vote had you know, the, the fact that he got seven, 70 million voters. Some of it, I think, was because of people who benefited economically from his policies. I also think he's an extraordinary communicator. And I was surprised by how many people, for example, didn't hold him accountable for what we're going through with the pandemic. Uh, so many, every time I saw someone put a microphone in, someone, in front of someone's face on television, the person would invariably say, well, he's doing as well as he could. No one could have done any better. I don't believe that for a second, but that clearly is, is pervasive. I think also in elections, people vote against as well as they vote for. And I think people voted against uh, not so much Vice President Biden, but what they saw as uh, some of the some of what the forces who were supporting him, and were concerned about such things as defunding police, uh, a much larger government role in the in the uh, economy, and, and and so forth. And I, I kind of come back to where the Vice President was. Uh, I think it'd be a real mistake to demonize people who voted for Donald Trump. It's 70 million of our fellow Americans. And so I think the, the question is, how do, we, how do we start or resume that, that conversation? Because again, if and when he, he departs the Oval Office, I don't think he and Mr. Biden are gonna be sharing a desk in that office. I don't think I'm gonna drag in a chair and at least sit on one side of the resolute. I don't think it's gonna work that way. Uh, you know, but after he departs the Oval Office, he's still going to be a force in American politics. Trumpism will still be a force in American politics. We're only two years away from a, a midterm election, uh, which could have all sorts of consequences. And we, we still don't know what Georgia will do long before then. So I, I, I don't think we should treat this that almost like a meteor that went across the sky and it's going to disappear. I think this is now with a foreseeable future. Uh, this kind of populism and nationalism and the rest, uh, I think this is now part and parcel of the, of the American uh, political reality. Larry, do you agree with that? I Larry? Think lot, I think a lot of that is true. I think certainly the election was driven by domestic considerations. But let me uh, put a question to you, uh, Dr. Haas. Um, the... The, the, the Trump argument, which it's true, uh, may not have penetrated into the broad uh, mass of Americans, 
but it also didn't provoke a revolt. You had many Republicans kind of not liking it, but going along. And the argument is that American national security and foreign policy has been very expensive. It's been ineffective and it's made lots of mistakes. And so one of the things that you saw Donald Trump pointing out was the mistake of George Bush going into Iraq, that it was based on this faulty idea that there were weapons of mass destruction and ended up uh, you know, dismantling the balance of power that existed between Iraq and Iran and opened up the Shia arc in the Middle East that certainly has set back American interests and those of our allies. Do you think that there have been mistakes on the part of US foreign policy and national security that might've cleared the way for Donald Trump type of uh, candidate and now president? The short answer is yes. I think Iraq and to some extent Afghanistan were foremost among them. Uh, these were expensive, uh, what I would call examples of, of overreach. The, uh, just to be clear, not the original decision to get involved in Afghanistan after 9-11, but the attempts to remake it. And then the, the 2003 Iraq war, I thought was a strategic error. And I was in the government at the time and unsuccessfully argued against it. The, uh, and I think that the 2007-8 financial crisis, I think a lot of Americans essentially lost a lot of confidence in what you might call elites or the establishment. And that I think in no small part explains why they were willing to trust the fate of the country to an outsider. There was a sense that uh, the people they would normally trust the country to hadn't done so well. Middle-class wages had drifted for, for two decades. Uh, there were a lot of problems in the society. And I think people were willing to take a, a flyer, if you, uh, if you will, in Donald Trump. And I, but coming back to your larger question, Look, we have made mistakes over the years. I think uh, Vietnam will be seen historically, obviously, as a mistake. Uh, I just mentioned Iraq. I would mention Libya more recently. I would say uh, in the Korean War, I think we were exactly right to intervene when North Korea invaded in 1950. I believe it was a mistake to go north of the 38th parallel and try to reunify the country by force. What all these things have example, by the way, have in common these examples, is they were all examples of wars of choice where we overreached, where we essentially asked military force to do too much. And I think that's true. I would just simply say a couple of big things on the other side. One is over, if overreach is a danger, so too can be underreach. There's a lot of history about uh, what happens when the United States does too little. Second of all, despite these mistakes, uh, since I, you know, I've written history and I've studied it, I would challenge anyone to come up with a better stretch of 75 years than the last 75 years for the United States. What a, what a remarkable run for this country and the world. And when I look at uh, from 1945 to the present, there's been no great power conflict. The Cold War stayed cold. It ended on terms favorable to us. Our economy has grown by orders of magnitude. The average American lives around a decade longer. Uh, I could go on. It's been an extraordinary run of history. And, and by the way, we were able to do everything we did in the world and still improve tremendously at home and the quality of our lives. 
So what this says to me is as, as expensive as foreign policy and national security are, we've got the capacity for guns and butter. I also think the lesson of history is we've got to do both. National security is a coin with two sides, both the international and the uh, domestic. This has been a remarkable run of history and it would really be tragic if the lesson to take from some of our mistakes where we did too much, that now we can safely turn our backs on the world. If that's the case, uh, the cost of that, I believe, would be, will turn out to be far greater than the cost of our periodic overreach. Mr. Mondale, uh, when you were in office with Jimmy Carter, you uh, pursued both the diplomatic line with a number of breakthroughs um, around the world, including in uh, setting in, in pace the unraveling of the apartheid regime in South Africa. But you were also uh, in an administration which modernized our military force uh, going from uh, kind of the old me mechanical to the new uh, uh, systems, including many of our modern um, uh, uh, weapon systems originated in ideas or actually development that, that occurred during the Carter-Mondale years. Do you think, what, how do you chart the path for US diplomacy and national security? Well, I think it's going to take a lot of thought. You know, I, I, I agree with what Richard Haas said here. I think that the net effect of what we've done over the years has been very positive and very successful. But there have been uh, potholes. And I think the, um, um, this has set off a negative feeling around the country. You know, we're spending too much. We're and, and maybe we are, we're, um, we're sending these uh, vain characters around with a gun in their hand and they're, they're starting wars. And then we have to pay for all this. And we, we, want, we want this um, uh, ridiculous stuff stopped. Uh, now, uh, I don't know how much of what I just said is correct. I think some of it is, but um, we, we've got a we've got a lot of uh, unrest in America over this question, and uh, maybe we need a lot of things. We need um, a Secretary of Defense who will go out and speak for us. Uh, we need uh, a president who will speak, and then maybe maybe this president will do. I think he's the new president elect is pretty good on these issues. Um, we need a, a national um, security NSA apparatus that's, that's good and reliable. We need, um, I think one of the things I hope we can talk about here is we need to get American education at work on these questions. Not that they're a, a token group for the military, but uh, people like Larry and there's thousands of others know a lot about these issues and we should get them more heavily involved in discussing these questions. Uh, the, the American press, the national press, are they doing what they can to gain 
public attention and support for what we need to do. Um, I don't know, these are a lot of questions I have. Dr. Haas, um, you have actually written quite a bit about the importance of education and your concern that we have a kind of global illiteracy problem in America. When you look at how you would define national security, you have the issues of the fact that we've got the largest military budget in the world. In fact, it's, it's larger than the next 10 countries. Is that the way we should think about American national security exclusively? It's, it's kind of a, a weapons and, and forces issue, or is there more to it? As, as you know, uh, obviously more to it. It's the military is one tool in the national security toolbox. You've got other foreign policy tools, foreign aid, you've got trade, you've got intelligence, you've got diplomacy in every form. Uh, so we've got all sorts of tools to promote our national security around the uh, world. Let me just sort of say as much as we spend as a percentage of our economy, we're spending considerably less now than we averaged during the Cold War. So we, we can afford this. Uh, and at home, we in many cases, we spend quite a lot. We just don't spend it wisely. And, you know, we spend nearly twice the average of developed countries on health care per capita. Well, last I checked, we're not twice as healthy and we're not, we don't live twice as long. So again, it's you know, in my experience in government, and I should by full disclosure, uh, Vice President Mondale won't know this for good reason, but uh, I worked in the uh, Carter-Mondale administration. I was in the Pentagon there for a year and a half, give or take, uh, in 79 and 80. So, uh, but again, we uh, as a percentage of GDP, we've often spent more we have a lot more than we're, we're, we're spending out. But to get to your question, Larry, the other half of national security is obviously domestic. And it's everything from political consensus and cohesion, willingness to act, but it's also the, the resource availability. It's our ability to compete. So I think national security ultimately gets into the quality of public education, K through 12 education, obviously public health, as we're, we're, we're seeing now. Uh, quality of our, of our universities, our infrastructure. I mean, at some point, the, the strength of an economy and a society, the functionality of a political system, all matter. I mean, national security is not simply about how much military power you have available. It's in many cases about your ability to continue to generate improvements, but also to have the political consensus to use whatever it is you uh, have in a divided society or a society that's so preoccupied with the challenges here at home, we simply won't have the bandwidth to do much in the, uh, in the world. Dr. Haas, uh, as you know, uh, the issue of climate change is almost entirely uh, political and it's part of the Democrat-Republican uh, polarization. Is it also uh, part of national security? Should we be thinking about what's happening in the climate as a threat to American interests? Look, the short answer is yes. Uh, I think it's really unfortunate that climate change has uh, become politicized in this way. As we've seen with the fires on the coast, as we've seen with floods and storms, uh, almost like the virus, climate change doesn't discriminate between Republicans and Democrats. We're all potential victims or uh, targets can affect the quality of, of our lives. Uh, collectively. 
Uh, there is an international dimension to it in terms of uh, what we get other countries to do. Uh, obviously, this domestic. And by the way, it's not only cost. I think too often the debate is pitted as doing something about climate change or doing something about the economy. And from where I sit, it's doing something about climate change and doing something about the economy. There's a lot of potential in jobs and green uh, technologies. Uh, I think this can be a real boon for not just domestically, but internationally. Uh, we can be as competitive as, uh, as anybody. And I, I think the day will come when Republicans will come around on this issue, in part when I used to travel to campuses back in the old days when one could travel. Uh, you remember that maybe when you were young, Larry, uh, when you had students in a classroom. The um, yeah. climate change is by far the biggest issue on campuses. And you know, the last I checked from when I read Genesis, God created the heavens and the earth. And when I meet with various uh, evangelical groups and others, there's a real understanding that we here are simply custodians. We have responsibilities to future generations. So I, I think the day will come. Uh, and I don't think I'm naive here. We're climate change. Well, I mean, we may disagree over the proper policies and remedies, and I think there'll be big debates about it. Uh, but I, I, I'm relatively optimistic that the day will come sooner rather than later when climate, when people, most people stop denying it. And then we have a serious debate about what to do about it. Mr. Mondale, you uh, uh, played an historic role in the normalizing of relations with China. President Nixon had recognized China, but then the next big bang was your trip to uh, China in 1979, which had economic, it had cultural, it also had, as we now realize with recent um, declassification, it had national security dimensions to it. Are you uh, disappointed in how the US uh, relations with China have evolved over the last uh, half century? Yes, uh, mightily disappointed and maybe uh, Mr. Haas, Dr. Haas could uh, jump in here and give some intelligence going on this issue. But yeah, if, um, if you deal with uh, uh, China in the way that I did, uh, I got to be a good friend of Deng Xiaoping and so on. I think we made a lot of progress and then it fell apart. But uh, this guy that uh, she there now, he he just is, um, uh, I'm really unimpressed. I think he's all just self-centered uh, in China and he wants to see China run the world. And we don't have, um, what we did have, which was um, um, some harmony, some common uh, efforts that we were both involved in. Uh, I don't how that fell apart. I don't know, but boy, it is falling apart. And I think it's a big. China is now our big biggest competitor, and we need to 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 take seriously how we begin resume some some kind of healthy relationship. Dr. Haas? Well, look, I think for two decades, including when Mr. Mondale was, was vice president, the uh, you know, China and the United States essentially found themselves on the same side 
against the Soviet Union. And I think that was an important factor in the successful waging of the Cold War. And I think when the Cold War ended roughly three decade, decades ago, there was, there was hope that as China continued to evolve, and Vice President Mondale mentioned Deng Xiaoping, it would continue to act restrained beyond its borders, will continue to focus on domestic economic development. And people were hoping that over time, not only would it continue to act with restraint internationally, but at home they were hoping it would become politically and economically more open. Needless to say, that hasn't happened in recent, uh, over the last decade. I, I, I agree that uh, Xi Jinping is a very different kind of leader. And this is a very different kind of China. It's more repressive at home. The state role in the economy is growing rather than shrinking. It's, uh, you know, we saw what happened in Hong Kong. We see what's happening with the Uyghur Muslim minority. Uh, and we see China pushing in virtually every direction, the South China Sea against Taiwan on its border with India, vis-a-vis -vis Japan. So there's real grounds for concern. And you know, this has emerged as the most important bilateral relationship. So what, I, what I'm hoping is we figure out a way to push back against China where we, we should and must. If we're smart, we won't do it unilaterally. I think one of the changes you'll see in our policy will be, it'll be much more multilateral. We'll do it much more in concert with our Asian allies, with India, with Europe. I don't think actually the ends of policy will change all that much in, with the administration change. I think it's gonna be a difficult relationship uh, regardless. And I think the challenge again is to push back where we have to, to shape Chinese behavior, but not, hopefully we can avoid a confrontation, not just to avoid a confrontation, but I'd like to keep open the possibilities, say where we could do some limited cooperation on limiting the North Korean nuclear and missile challenge or doing something on climate or doing something on Afghanistan. That's, it's a really demanding foreign policy goal. I think it's possible, but it's, it's not gonna be easy to get this relationship moving in a, in a, positive, uh, in a positive direction. Dr. Haas, let me uh, posit to you a uh, concern, see what you think. 1946 is, is kind of often talked about as the moment when the U.S.-Soviet Union Cold War started. And historians have gone back and we've had the benefit of going into the archives of the Soviet Union as well as presidential archives. And there are some key moments where there were misperceptions, there were misunderstandings, and uh, the sense is we had opportunities to pull back from the Cold War um, and the massive military buildup um, and, and threat that it posed. It feels as if we are at the brink of a Cold War with China. And I'm curious if you see it that way and what you would recommend on the diplomatic and foreign policy front to kind of pull us back, to take advantage of what the historians see as missed opportunities in 46 and 47. What does 21 look like in terms of? Sure. Let me just sort of say as a 10 second aside, but I won't, we won't go down that rabbit hole is I'm not one of those who thinks the Cold War could easily have been avoided. I just don't buy it, given the uh, fundamentals of Soviet foreign policy at the time. Uh, where I think historians will have an interesting conversation is about the post-Cold War period, the 90s between the United States and Russia, whether that could have been handled differently. And there's a big debate already about whether the degree of a Russian alienation was inevitable, 
whether Putinism, if you will, was inevitable. That's another rabbit hole. We'll leave that for another day. Uh, look, I don't think anything's inevitable in the U.S.-China uh, relationship. Uh, I don't think the Cold War is a particularly useful framing for it, in part because China is already so economically integrated in the world in ways that the Soviet Union never was with much more autarkic. I also don't think China has the same sense of global ambitions. I think it's at least its immediate ambitions are closer to home with dealing with the South China Sea, Taiwan, maintaining political control uh, for the, for the uh, party. So as I said, what I think we ought to do on one hand is work with our partners and allies, India, Vietnam, obviously Japan, Australia, South Korea, the Europeans, and controlling the flow of technology with, to China and better competing with China. So we offer alternative technologies, whether it's 5G or other things. I think the United States should reconsider the decision not to go into what was the Trans-Pacific Partnership. I think we ought to present China with a strong uh, geoeconomic grouping. So China has to raise its game if it wants to maintain access to these uh, large markets. But let me also say something that uh, I think we shouldn't do. And the Secretary of State and I disagree on this for what, uh, for what it's worth. But in recent speeches, he has talked about essentially, uh, he's, he's called for the end of the role of the Communist Party in China, essentially calling for regime change in China. And I think uh, the focus of US foreign policy has to be on Chinese behavior, not on how China organizes its political system. Reminds me of some of the early debates in the Soviet Union where there were those calling for rollback. If we talk about rollback in China, uh, we won't succeed. All we will do is stimulate a powerful nationalist reaction and we will forfeit the opportunities to work out a, a relationship that might better serve our, our interests. So I think, again, we've got to figure out how to push back, how to keep open possibilities, but also the limits of our pushback. I think, again, we can't transform China. I think we can influence what China does there. Mr. Mondale, uh, when you were uh, engaged with China, the issue of Taiwan was a front page story. Um, and we have variety, we have a, a history with Taiwan. There is growing concern that uh, President Xi and the Chinese military might pose uh, a military threat to Taiwan. How do you think the U.S. should respond to that? Um, by the way, I don't, I don't remember that discussion with Taiwan back then, but maybe we had it. But we were uh, trying to improve U.S.-China relations and so on. Um, the um, <clears throat> could you help me with that question again? Well, Dr. Haas, let me posit the same question to you. Given the 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 reports of a potential military effort uh, against Taiwan, particularly in this period where um, President Trump has pulled back, where there's confusion about the leadership in the U.S. What do you think we should be thinking about in terms of our relations, our support, perhaps, which would be norm-breaking for the Taiwanese government? Let me just give, make sure everyone has the history. Um, you know, for 40 years, the United States, China, and Taiwan have successfully finessed uh, the relations among the three. And credit goes to the Nixon-Kissinger administration as well to the Carter-Mondale administration. And we set up the structures of relations with China, including that of accepting the notion of, uh, or recognizing the notion that 
of only one China, yet we also entered into all sorts of obligations to Taiwan. Now, there was a level of ambiguity in all this, but for 40 years, this ambiguity and this, this three-cornered approach has worked well. Taiwan has been secure. It's become a robust democracy. It's been a thriving economy. Uh, the question is whether this will work for the next 40 years, and people like me have doubts. Uh, China's become far more capable and seemingly impatient. And so the question is, how do we make sure that the mainland doesn't put pressure on Taiwan? I mean, not just how do we avoid a war, but things less than war, coercive measures against. Uh, and my view is that we should become more explicit in pushing back here. And also, we need to better prepare for various contingencies. Uh, to strengthen Taiwan, but also ourselves and the neighbors, because what's at issue here is not just Taiwan, as significant as Taiwan is. If China were to put great pressure on Taiwan, if the United States didn't act, I believe it actually would undermine the entire American alliance system in, in the Asia Pacific, including Japan and, and, and South Korea. So I think we ought to be working with Taiwan and these other countries about deterring any Chinese action. And the best way you can always deter is by preparing for it reducing your vulnerability and also making clear to China that it would not be only meeting out pain, but it itself would potentially uh, put things at risk if it were to act against Taiwan, militarily, economically, cyber, uh, what have you. So I just think essentially the goal ought to be not to change the political status, but how to make sure that uh, coercion does not become the the new norm, if you will, in, 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 these, in these relationships. So I think we probably have to become slightly more explicit and, and certainly have to raise our level of preparedness and capability. Dr. Haas, uh, you know, as does uh, Mr. Mondale, Graham Allison, um, a famous um, analyst of national security at Harvard. Um, and Graham Allison wrote a book that, uh, that he, in which the core ideas what he refers to as the Thucydides trap. And he looks at these moments going back 2,500 years, sure. a bit of research, where he looks at these cases where you had an established power, let's call it the United States, and an ascendant rising power, let's call it China. And in three quarters of those cases, war results. Now, you've just talked about preparedness. You've talked about much clearer signaling of our national security intent. Um, do you think that those things could um, push us closer to a conflict with China, kind of fall into the, the Thucydides trap that, that Graham Allison identified? Uh, I'm not a great believer in the notion of a Thucydides trap. You know, I've worked for in four administrations, in uh, Carter Mondale for Reagan and both Presidents Bush. My biggest takeaway from the four is nothing's inevitable. Uh, there's, there's very little about history that's locked in. Uh, how the people in the room respond to certain challenges or opportunities, it's different people would respond differently. That applies to us, that applies to China. So I don't believe in this. Uh, I, I, by no means is it inevitable. Is it possible? Sure. Uh, just about anything is possible. But I think it's well within the bounds of what you might call reasonable statecraft or diplomacy to, to avoid it. And what I'm simply suggesting is I think there are some things we have to do to adjust our diplomacy 
because uh, this is a different China. And I think this is a much more assertive China. I do think, by the way, coming back to something you said before, like, is they do, well, let me put it this way. I, I, would, I, I would think they would have certain questions in their mind about what the United States might do. I much prefer deterrence by certainty than uncertainty. And I think this administration has opened up questions about America's willingness to stand by its uh, traditional friends and allies. So I think we need to uh, shut down that uncertainty. I think we need to make deterrence much more uh, robust. And I think China then would be much more likely to be careful uh, that they will take advantage of opportunities. So when we leave various organizations, whether it's the World Health Organization or something else, I think China's more than happy to take advantage of the vacuum. If we create doubts about our willingness to help Taiwan or somewhere else, they're more than happy to take advantage of that. But I think if we push back and we make it clear that we're on the game and we're on the field and we're going to play, we're going to play the game seriously, then I think China will 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 uh, will adjust to that. Mr. Mondale, um, what do let, you me, let me just jump here a minute. We're we're now organizing um, our government for the next four years and uh, including the foreign policy and uh, security side of the government. Uh, are there ways of, uh, let me ask Mr. Hossus, are there, are there ways of organizing the government so that we're more with these challenges right from the get-go than if we play it out for several, uh, for a couple years and then catch on? Is there, is there, is there a line here that could work? It's interesting. Um, I don't think the answers are organizational. And we've made organizational changes over the years. I mean, going 47, we created the, made the modern national security system. After 9-11, we did things like create Homeland Security. We reorganized the intelligence community. I don't think this is a time to do anything structural. I think there's too much. It's a little bit like we've got the patient on the operating table. It's probably not the time to remodel the operating theater. Uh, I think you'll likely bring in experienced hands. I mean. Mr. Uh, Biden has a really deep bench from which to choose. There's all sorts of people who worked in the previous uh, administration, particularly the Obama-Biden administration. But you have a lot of experienced hands. I don't think it'll take them long to get up to uh, uh, speed. Like I worked in what I thought was the, the most effective foreign policy administration, uh, both in terms of process, I would argue, in terms of policy, which was Bush 41. And with uh, Bush and Baker, Brent Scowcroft and others, Colin Powell, Dick Cheney, Bob Yates, it was really an extraordinary uh, team. And I think, you know, the president can set the tone. And I think the single most important thing is, 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 this, is the senior people. It's who's the cabinet, who are people at the top level and who do they put one and two levels uh, down. So I, I would focus on that. Uh, at some point, policy is people. And, and I think the challenge for Mr. Biden is not going to be, it's not that we need to reinvent process. It's going to be the, the enormity of what awaits him when he takes the job. COVID-19, a country politically divided, uh, racially divided, economically divided, the rise of China, a cranky Russia, all these global challenges, alliances in disrepair. It's one hell of an inbox. Uh, is going to is going to greet the uh, 46th president. 
And I think the question will be, he's is for him, and that's where Ron Klain, the new chief of staff, becomes so important, is going to be alloc- allocating his time, alloc- determining priorities, uh, and, and trying to balance the international against the national. And within, within each, what are the priorities nationally? What are the priorities uh, internationally? Um, Dr. Haas, we've got a bunch of questions here. I've been kind of filtering them into our conversation. Uh, but here's one, we've been talking um, more about the flaws of the Trump uh, foreign policy, national security policies. What would you identify as some positive aspects? Yeah. Well, since I wrote about it this past Monday in Foreign Affairs, it's not that hard. Let's see if I can remember what I wrote uh, four days ago. Look, yeah. some of the things I would mention is one, we've been talking about this more uh, 2020 approach towards China. Uh, a, a more skeptical, more concerned line towards China. That might be the most important thing uh, he did. Second of all, I think getting a trade agreement through the Congress with bipartisan support, the USMCA, the kind of NAFTA 2.0, I think was an important uh, milestone. Uh, thirdly, I think the decision to give uh, arms to Ukraine was overdue. And I would argue uh, uh Welcome the normalization agreements between, say, Israel and UAE and Bahrain. So, you know, those are all things that I thought were, uh, were, uh, were valuable. Military modernization uh, contri- continued as best I could see. So I would say those are all, uh, all positives. When you look at the president's uh, much-discussed effort to, as he put it, uh, make sure that Europe uh, ponied up for its expenses in the collective security um, of Europe. Is that a real issue or is that an issue that the president misunderstood and then, you know, headed down this rabbit hole of trying to walk away from, of, you know, arrangements that we've had that Mr. Mondale built, helped build uh, for collective security that served U.S. interests? Well, you put your finger on it right there. I think his whole going in position was that uh, we were paying for the security of our allies and we were overpaying. They were getting a free ride and we should change that. And I think he missed, and I know this from the conversations I've had with him, he was missing two things. One was what we were quote unquote paying was relatively modest uh, and more important, their benefits were great. Uh, so I thought he, I thought he missed uh, that basic thing. I also think there's an argument, look, should allies be spending more in defense? Yes. Will their politics allow it? No. I would much rather have a conversation with the allies, which basically said, if you take all of Europe together, my numbers may be slightly off, but the last I checked, they were spending in the neighborhood of some close somewhere, 250, $300 billion on defense. That's a hell of a lot of money. The problem is they're not getting 250, $300 billion worth of defense out of what they spend on defense. Why? Because each country makes its own decisions for the most part. So there's tremendous duplication because uh, they're making the decisions based upon their own political traditions. Uh, I, you could get far, far, far more defense capability out of a single European defense budget. So I would put the focus there. I would actually try to Europeanize uh, the conversation and talk much more about Again, it's, it's, it's always what should be the conversation rather than how much you spend is how you spend it. And so I would focus much more 
on trying to come up with a coordinated approach to European and in some cases European and American defense spending. Last I checked, we are in this alliance called uh, NATO. So that, that would be my approach. And also it's gotta be done in a friendly way. The problem with, the, with this president's approach is not only that he was badgering the allies in Europe and in Asia for that matter about how much they were spending, but he was essentially making the American commitment to them conditional on it. And he did that with South Korea he, and, he did with, and, and he did it with the Europeans. So it, it undermined the fabric of the, uh, of the uh, alliance. And I think it also weak, it diluted deterrence uh, in terms of how, how our foes would think about it. Do you think the, uh, the president's um, withdrawal of troops from Germany is uh, the right move to kind of uh, put in proper balance what the American commitment is versus the German commitment? Short answer is no. I mean, U.S. forces in Europe are down dramatically. What are they, 20% or whatever what they were at the end of the Cold War? I've, I've lost you know, track, uh, but they're modest. Shouldn't have been done. It was done to Germany, not with Germany. Uh, no, I mean, this is penny wise and pound foolish. Uh, we need, it's good to have the forces there. Last I checked, the Russian threat is bigger, not smaller. It's also a good platform if we want troops to go other parts of the world. No, and, I, and if he goes ahead with it, I would think one of the first things Mr. Biden would do is reverse it, uh, which is which is what we uh, what, what what we should be doing. Mr. Mondale, do you have a view about U.S. forces and in, in Europe and and in other countries abroad? Is this a good use of our of our um, diplomatic and national security assets? You know, I'm not an expert on this, but I, my, my judgment has been that the placement of uh, troops in Europe is about right. Uh, Oops, we lost the sound there. We lost your sound, Mr. Mondale. Just hold on a second, it'll come back in a minute. Um, meanwhile, Dr. Haas, let me ask you another question that one of our viewers- did I, did I just get knocked off the platform there? You did, you're back though. You're back. Yeah, okay. Um, Dr. Like, like Tiger Woods in today's masters, you're back. <laughs> mm -hmm. Dr. Haas, we haven't talked about North Korea. This was a, a major focus for uh, President Trump. Uh, you know, some people give him credit for trying new approaches. We saw this in the Middle East. It was kind of, you know, scattershot, maybe, um, you know, challenging old ways. North Korea, an example of that or, or an example what not to do? Well, it's an example of a new approach. It's also an example of a failure. North Korea today has uh, far more nuclear missile capacity than it had three and a half, four years ago. So I'm not against uh, new approaches per se. I am against that kind of high level tight wire diplomacy without careful preparations. The, uh, the president has a conceit about personal diplomacy, whether it's with Kim Jong-un or Xi Jinping or Vladimir Putin or a lot of other leaders that I think is dangerous. I just don't think that's the way to conduct foreign policy. I think presidential involvement can be critical, but more as the caboose to the train rather than as the entire train. Uh, the idea that North Korea is going to quote unquote denuclearize anytime soon is a pipe dream. And what we ought to be doing is trying to limit 
their nuclear missile capabilities rather than have this all or nothing approach to diplomacy, which as we've seen ended up with nothing. There's an article in Foreign Affairs by two folks you know, William Burns and Linda Greenfield, arguing that the State Department needs to be rebuilt and saved. Do you agree with that assessment? Yeah, I do with one caveat. I think both Rex Tillerson and Mike Pompeo have really done a number on the department they ran. Uh, neither one has done any favors to American diplomacy or the Foreign Service or the State Department. Uh, so let me just say that. But I think it's also important to say that the State Department and the Foreign Service were, I thought, in, in, in a kind of slow motion crisis before them. I think uh, the lack of training for the Foreign Service, uh, not even not even the same zip code as what we do with the military, recruiting. Uh, I'm not sure we off, we always get the best and brightest in some cases because we haven't made it as enticing a, a career path as we could and uh, should. I think there's some real questions to be asked about the role of Foreign Service officers and embassies in the modern uh, world. Here we are having this conversation virtually. Well, what, what is it now we, we we want need. Uh, so I think there's lots of issues. So look, I would hope who's ever the new Secretary of State, whoever he or she is, they've got two deputies. One of the deputies is there for administrative or management purposes. And I would think it ought to be a priority to put someone in that job who will really look at rethinking how America conducts diplomacy. And that's everything from the technology side to the physical side, and obviously most important, the, the people side. Uh, and I think there's a you know, in, a, in the short run, it may, it may call for such things as, as a lateral reentry. Some of the people who retired early ought to come back. I think we got a short-term fix and hopefully we'll appoint good people uh, to embassies and in the department. So we got a short-term fix to get up to speed. And then we got a long-term institutional and generational challenge. So I almost think you need to divide it between these different time horizons. Um. Tom Friedman visited with us uh, maybe a month ago. And one of the things that Tom said, and he used the example of China's control, as far as we can tell, of the coronavirus spread. Um, he asked whether America's democracy can perform with the same effectiveness as autocratic China. Is that a legitimate question? Do you, do you see that as? Well, it's a legitimate, it's a legitimate question, but I guess I'd slightly disagree. Tom and I went to graduate school together. So we've been disagreeing now for uh, the best part of, uh, I don't know, four and a, 45 years. So first of all, I'm not sure autocratic China gets it right. And we, one of our fellows just published a book in the last week or two, got a great review in the Wall Street Journal called Toxic Politics. And you look at the implications of China's uh, environmental degradation, its healthcare policies, its implications for their economy and politics. You look at the implications of the one child policy uh, and all that the demographic nightmare that that's caused. Look, one of, the, one of the characteristics of a top heavy system like China is the difficulty of self-correcting. Uh, mistakes, when mistakes are made, it's very hard for anyone to go to the leader and say, hey, you made a mistake there, boss. Uh, so I think, I'm not sure China in many cases is that appealing of a model. They got, look how poorly they performed on, on the outbreak of COVID-19. So I don't think China is, a, to me, all that appealing uh, of a model. The challenge for us, and the only thing we have control over 
is making American democracy vital and making our economy uh, both robust, but also more fair, dealing with our social uh, flaws. That's all on us. So I kind of feel the competition is in China. I think the competition's ourselves. And the real question is, uh, are we willing and able to do what we need to do to revitalize uh, our society, our economy, and deal with our political dysfunction? And you know, that's you know, not the sort of stuff I normally focus on, though increasingly I'm tempted to. Uh, but I think that that's on us. So if, if, if looking at China spurs us to do some things, great. But this is not, a, in that sense, this is not us versus China. This is us versus us. China was responsible, yes, for the outbreak of COVID-19, for its initial mishandling, the fact that it reached our shores. But starting around February, it's on us. And our inept response to COVID-19, that wasn't made in China. That was made in America. We have got it wrong, clearly at the federal level, also at the state, many of the states and cities. We have got to learn the right lessons. Uh, and that, so again, I, I, I think the real competition issue is a domestic one. Sorry to get on my soapbox there, but there you have it. Mr. Mondo, we are now out of time. Do you want to uh, offer the last set of comments? Well, I, I like uh, uh, the Herr Doctor's uh, <laughs> question and approach. I, I think we do need to be uh, much more uh, engaged in the domestic side. We need to get better att attitudes. We need uh, better policies. We need to work more intensely. We need to get more people doing what he's doing and what you're doing uh, out here, getting the American people engaged in, in the debate. Thank you very much, uh, Vice President Mondale. Dr. Haas, it's been great. I hope you'll come back and visit. Thank you very much. Thank you both. Stay safe and well. I want to just, we're just going to wrap up here. I just want to mention, we've got some great programs coming up. Jake Sullivan, who's a close advisor to uh, President-elect Biden, will be with us on Monday. That's going to be great. A lot of you may know Jake. He's a Minnesotan. Terrific story in the Star Tribune today on the front page about him. Uh, then we've got uh, a terrific conversation about the threats to our democracy uh, based on a new book by Suzanne Mettler at Cornell. And then this is a topic I know a lot of people feel strongly about polling. During the 2020 election, we've got two terrific people coming in to talk about that November 24th. I hope you'll come back and visit with us. I want to just mention that our programs are available. Um, you can get them on uh on um, get them on Zoom. It'll be posted tomorrow. We'll send around information. It's also available, <coughs> excuse me. It's also available uh, as a podcast. If you'd like to uh, contribute to the center, these programs uh, require uh, resources uh, and uh, we'd be grateful for your support. Give to the Max Day is with us. Think about um, the center as you are participating. Once again, thank you very much to our terrific guests and to all of you who joined us. Thank you. Bye.